Welcome to Creation Conversations with Joe Hubbard and John Mackay. Join us each week as we answer your questions and common objections to the Bible, creation, and Noah's flood. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you're joining us from around the world. Welcome back to Creation Conversations for another fascinating topic from the Creation Research team. Now, in the book of Matthew, Jesus tells us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. So God really does require us to think. And it's interesting that the original purpose of a museum was not the sort of entertainment factor that you often get in them now, but it was actually to help people think. I mean, think about the name, right? Museum, a place for you to muse, a place for you to think about the world around you. Now, that is actually something that we're trying to do with our Creation Research <coughs> Museums project, which is going on all around the world. We have six different programs uh, in place, six different museum projects in place around the world, and it's all about trying to get people to think and to think about the world that they live in and to think about the world that they live in in light of the Bible. So in today's creation conversations, we're going to be going around the world. Uh, we've got uh, most of the team here who's going to have a, a bit of a chat about some of the research that we do uh, with our museums, about some of the displays in our museums and about some of the purpose of our museums as well. Now, we are devoid of a uh, John Mackay today, who unfortunately wasn't feeling too well, so do keep John in your prayers, uh, but he may or may not be along later. But we have the rest of the team. We've got uh, Craig Hawkins, we've got Glenn Wilson, and of course his, his wife Ruby there as well. Uh, we've got Dr. Diane Eager and Sam Jenkins, and we're all going to be taking part in having a look at this global museum ministry, as well as answering your questions. So yes, as we go along with this program, do make sure you get into the chat box, say hello, let us know you're here, and uh, also ask us some questions as we go, because we're delving into a fascinating world of not only just museums, but what we actually have on display in the museums and some of the behind-the-scenes background stuff uh, about some of the research that goes on in these places as well. Now, speaking of research, uh, we're actually going to kick things off uh, by going over to Dr. Glenn Wilson, who I understand uh, for the last uh, little while has been digging up bones. Yes, digging up bones, just like the country music song. In fact, one night, David. Not familiar with that one. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me that there's a country music song about bones. <laughs> yeah, in one night, David sang us uh, by the firelight as we sat around his version of that digging up bones song, which was from a, um, you know, a, a fossil digger perspective. Right. It's really good. All right, Fair I'm going to try to go to sharing our screen. Yep, you go ahead and get your slides up there, Glenn, and um, pull them up ready to show. Because, um, right. of course, uh, Glenn has, been, has spent uh, a little bit of time with our very good friend of the ministry, David Reeves, uh, over in the United States. So, uh, Glenn, your slides are up and ready to go, so I'm going to hand straight over to you. All right. So, like I said, this is a fossil uh, dig that David Reeves in his ministry organizes each year, and we joined them, but it was in... Um, someplace we're not allowed to say in Kansas, uh, because it is a quite famous place. This was our team. It was a small team. You've got here the ranch owners, and uh, here's David. And uh, this gentleman here, Stan, 
he has a museum as well. We're going to be talking about um, museums later. This guy lives about an hour and a half from the dig site, and he's been digging at this location for, I guess, 20, 30 years, and he's got a museum um, middle of nowhere, but it's really nice. It's packed into a house. He's a pastor, and he uses it in his ministry. So we're going to get started. One thing you'll notice, there's a lot of young people in here, and thank God for the young people, as you'll see at the end. This is the location. It's kind of a badlands in uh, Kansas. They say Kansas is flatter than a pancake. Well, it, most of it is, it is, but this is a washed out, eroded area. And you'll see you get down into these shells and up above it, you see these orange sandstones. And most of the fossils that we find are up here in, in this area, but you'll find them out scattered out throughout this area. And so the first day, we spent four days, first two days, really looking for and digging fossils. And then the last two days, trying to get them as much as we could out of the field. And this is David just giving us some instructions. One thing he's told us, it's always hot and sunny and miserably hot in Kansas. Well, it wasn't when we were there. It was raining. We had to delay a couple of days uh, getting in the field. And you can see we're bundled up in coats. This is mostly the types of things that we found. A, a lot of vertebrae. You see vertebrae here, vertebrae here, and we mark the locations, flag them, GPS them. Uh, bones, though, this one I spent a lot of time digging on, um, uncovering, and I, I'm not the most delicate of people, so when it got down to the real fine part of brushing, I turned that over to some others. Here's a fish plate. We also, um, we found shark teeth. And I say we because um, John Mackay has been kind of a mentor. And John's famous for, for when you find a fossil saying, oh, I saw that one first. Well, I, I, I saw this, this, this one first, right? No. <laughs> Ruby found all three of these and the largest of which I walked over probably 10 times. Um, and this is some fish poop. But all in the same location, we find petrified wood and then a lot of vertebrae, mostly uh, fish vertebrae, all different shapes, sizes. Some of these you'll find a foot long. We also find these uh, iron pyrite. This is an iron sulfide pyrite, uh, McKesic. Uh, McKesic is just an iron pyrite, and they're made for beautiful little balls, and they grow out from a seam in the middle. They grow outward as the iron sulfate precipitates out. So found a lot of those, they were really interesting. Other things we did the last two days, we went back, we found some really significant finds ourselves while we were there. Uh, one, Ruby spent a day on a fishtail that was about as long as your arm stretched out. But this is a site that David's groups had found four years ago and every year he wanted to get it out of the field, but never was able to. And we decided to spend the last two days getting this out. He thought this was uh, some type of fin on this end, but these bones connecting to it across here is what's got him really curious as to what it is. And he called a few other experts and sent them pictures, and they're not real sure as well. So we felt it was important to get these out of here. And to do that, there was a little separation here. So we decided to cut a trench across here 
and try to mushroom this so that we could plaster jacket it and get it out of the field. And that turned into an interesting process. So you can see Ruby here. Um, she's a lot more delicate than me, trying to cut, you know, dig these bones out at the top. And then here we are digging a trench around. Well, on this back side here, I started on the lower end of it and found that it was just all just rubble. It was washed in material. And the person digging up above it was finding bones and bones in this washed in material. And then we started digging the trench this way and we found something really interesting that put the whole thing to a stop because we got to dig this down about a foot, dig underneath it just to plaster this to be able to get it out of the field. But when we hit this, digging the trench, it brought everything to a stop. And David and his team of much better at digging these out very delicately, kept digging on it till they finally were able to retrieve it. And it was a buffalo uh, vertebrae with a rib attached to it. The vertebrae is back underneath here. Well, that brought up, as we were digging this, a concern as to whether this bone went all the way up to the upper bone. But as soon as he got it out, David knew something's not right. This doesn't fit. Now we're concerned that we can't dig this big pedestal out here uh, because of what else might be underneath it. And he kept saying, this, this just is out of place. This shouldn't be here. So I asked him if I could get down there and look. And what you find is you can see there is hard sandstone natural material here and up above. But as I got to looking as a soil scientist trained in judging, all this material underneath here is filled in material. It's not natural to this area. So what we came to the conclusion was this is a washed out area, just as that backside was washed out and just filled in with field material from up above. The same is true as this. This was an undercut bank at one time. This bone came from upslope, was deposited in here and reburied. And so that gave us assurance that we could finish cutting this pedestal out that you see here. And now we've covered it ready to plaster jacket it uh, ruby was part of the plaster team and that was going around real smooth till all of a sudden the biggest kid in the group there david reeves came and splattered her across the face with the plaster and that just kind of started it because you don't mess with mother ruby who then spied this young lad and um, next thing you know he's got plaster all over his face and you know, things tend to come full circle because then he turned and got David Reeves. Um, so we worked hard, but we had a little fun as well. And here you can see it's ready, ready to be retrieved from the field. And Joe, if you want to, show the video of that process because we're going to take this thing up the mountain mm -hmm. and going up one of these real thin branches that, of material that's left in place and we sent this young man up here to dig some footholds and you'll see some of this how dangerous it is this side's steep the back side is really just straight down and we're going to go up this bank with this probably 300 pound or more um pedestal so play the video playing it now you want me to one two three here they go again 
you put the board on that step a little higher, a little higher, a little higher. A little higher. Set it down, y'all. Oh. <laughs> and that was really yeah. ruined, but uh, I think if we wouldn't have been so tired, we'd all been you and at the end. <laughs> it's a good thing we had a lot of young people, but uh, taking it up that little thin, thin uh, branch of bank that was still left, and I don't know if you saw one of the young guys, he just falls and catches himself and pulls himself right back up. Mm -hmm. It's good to be young. Um, most of all those guys were um, 16 to 20, and the 20-year-old was a professional soccer player. So it was good to have strong, athletic young guys. Um, that was our week. It was exciting. It was a lot of fun. It was really great because in the afternoons, we'd sit around the fire, talk about what we saw, what we did, uh, play games, you know, to playing guitars and singing, and it, it was just an awesome experience, as well as having a Q&A, which I helped participate in. And then the last day um, invited everyone from the community to come in, and David gave series of talks. And so it, it was just awesome. The, the only problem that we had is during David's series of talks, I was sitting. By the time his talk was over, I was so cramped up, I couldn't get up from city. A week of digging will do that. <laughs> great experience. Though. Oh, good. No, it sounds like you had a really great, a really great time there. And so I'm looking forward to seeing David again in a few weeks' time when I'll be back in the States. So uh, pray for that and all the rest of the kind of research that Creation Research does all over the world. So thank you very much for that, Glenn. All right, I'm just going to introduce the next uh, the next little segment here, um, talking just about some of the uh, museum side of things, right? Um, because there's a couple of uh, a couple of Bible verses that I just wanted to sort of look at to get a uh, to get a bigger kind of perspective of things. Um, in particular, let me just pull these up on the screen here, because uh, as I said earlier, the whole idea of our museum's project is to get people to think, is to get people to understand uh, things about the world around them in light of scripture and so we'll often start for instance with you know the, the the giant dinosaurs for instance the big hollywood type versions and we'll compare them to the actual size dinosaurs velociraptors right uh, which are sort of 10 times smaller and make the point that if we've been lied to about this what other things 
have we been lied to about? So I've just put up some uh, slides on the screen there, Sam, if you can make sure that they're uh, up and ready to go. Um, just a few Bible verses that have become sort of key and integral part of uh, the Creation Research Museums. Psalm 111 verse 2 says, The works of the Lord are great, studied by those, uh, studied by all uh, who have pleasure in them. And we like to remind people that, uh, well, what are some of the works of the Lord? Because, of course, he is our saviour. It was Jesus Christ, who is God, who came uh, to earth. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he was crucified in order to bring around a salvation plan. So it's a great work that the Lord has done, an amazing work, a humbling work that the Lord has done. But when we're dealing about the word who is Jesus Christ, it's important to make sure we understand the fullness of who Jesus Christ is, because he's not just our saviour, he's our sustainer as well. You see all down through both the Old Testament and the New Testament that things are done by the word of the Lord, the word who is Jesus Christ, as he says in John chapter 1. But John chapter 1 is a great place to start because it also gives us that much greater context of who the word who is Jesus Christ is, because it starts with, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, so the word is eternal, the word is the one at the top, he is the God overall. And then it says that the word who is God, the eternal God, the all-powerful God, it says that by the word everything was made, and without the word nothing was made that was made. In other words, the word is the creator of of all and then when you skip down to verse 14 you find uh, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and his name is jesus christ and so you'll find that um jesus christ is the creator according to john chapter one but you shouldn't be surprised because it's both in the old testament and the new testament that jesus christ is stated over and over again that he is the creator i mean just think about it's not just john chapter one Colossians 1.16 says all things were made by Jesus Christ and for Jesus Christ. And it's in Jesus Christ that all things are held together. Um, beginning of Hebrews, right? In the last days, the, the, the prof, God has spoken to us by the prophets. Um, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son through whom he also made the world. So a big part of the works of the Lord is the creation that we see all around us and we marvel at the beauty of creation and uh, we look at the amazing design that there is in creation and you also have to bear in mind that one of the other works that the lord did is as a judge he's promised he'll bring judgment again in the future, but he certainly has judged the earth in the past not just in we can we can don't just see that in the different people groups that we have in the world today as a result of God's judgment when He muddled up the languages, split up the languages, um, but you also see it in the geological record. You see God as judge judging the world in a global flood. So a big part of the museums project we have all around the world is to put the works of the Lord so that people can marvel at them because they are great and then you can see the second uh, bible verse there isaiah 41 verse 20 which has become the sort of motto for creation research you see we put all of these works of the lord on display we put creation and evidence of noah's flood on display so that people may see and know may consider and understand together that the hand of the lord has done this the holy one of israel 
has created it. Now, there's an awful lot that we can pack out of just this one Bible verse. Um, we're putting this stuff on display so that people can see and know. People can consider and understand, can muse together, can think together that the hand of the Lord has done this. Who? The Holy One of Israel has created it. You realize that there's only one Holy One of Israel? It's Jesus Christ. Um, and uh, it really helps to define which God we're speaking about. Because this Bible verse leaves you with absolutely, uh, you know, absolutely uh, no uh, misunderstanding of who the Creator is. It's the Holy One of Israel. And uh, as we've pointed out many times before, you can walk down the streets of Iraq and you can say, hey, I believe God created, and you'll probably get a pat on the back. If you walk down and say the Holy One of Israel created the world, um, things go sour quite quickly because it's so important to define which God we're dealing with. It's the Holy One of Israel. It's Jesus Christ who is the Creator overall. And we do the ministry that we do. We put the things on display we get people into our museums, our thinking um, places, so that they may see and know, may consider and understand together the works of the Lord, both creation, judge, and saviour. And uh, the final Bible verse there, which has become the sort of tagline for uh, our Creation Research Centre in the UK, is Psalm 148, verse 7. Praise the Lord from the earth, you dragons. Um, of course, if you know much about the creation research uh, work and our background, the concept of dragons, and uh, well, you realize that uh, before the word dinosaur was invented, the creatures that were dinosaurs were referred to as dragons. In fact, even after the name dinosaur was invented, you see, we have plenty of these dragons in our museums, whether they be the fake Hollywood type ones, the more accurate uh, reconstructions, or the many, many fossils. And you see what it says? It's commanded to, these creatures are commanded to praise the Lord from the earth. So when we put these fossils on display, when we have these dinosaur depictions, when we have these dinosaur fossils, their purpose of being in the museum is to praise the Lord, to give glory to the creator, to the one who is the Holy One of Israel who created it, and to put these works on display. And we study them because we have pleasure in them in order to bring God glory. So these are some of the common themes that you'll find uh, around the creation museums uh, that we've developed as part of creation research around the world. Number one, it's to get people to think. Number two, it's to put the works of the Lord on display, creation, judge, and saviour on display so people can see and understand and come to realise who Jesus Christ really is. And thirdly, they're there to bring glory to Jesus himself. They're here to bring glory to the Creator and to declare him as Creator and Saviour. And as I've said many times before, the centres like the Creation Research Centre, where I am now, is designed for two major purposes. Number one, to be evangelistic. Number two, for discipleship. We want to give everybody the gospel who comes in here because it's the gospel that saves. And a big part of the gospel is Jesus Christ. And it's understanding the fullness of who Jesus Christ is that makes 
the gospel such good news. Um, but secondly, it's for discipleship. It's to train, it's to help, it's to raise up people, it's to provide people with the answers for the hope that is within them. It's to challenge Christians and believers. It's to be a resource for them as well. Just a couple of nights ago, we held a, um, a minister's open evening here. It was great to see so many different church leaders come together uh, in one building and spend time together in not just in, you know, discussion, discussing things about the museum, but just in fellowship with each other. It was great to see so many church leaders uh, come together like that. But one of the reasons we did this is not only to let the local churches know about us being here and what we're doing, but also to show the kind of resource that we could be for them and for their congregation, to show them the uh, the, the, the resource that we can be uh, to help them in their day-to-day -day work as ministers and Christian leaders. So it's for evangelism and it is for discipleship as well. Um, and to just finish before we carry on a little bit, to give you the big sort of importance of all of this, think about the uh, the account that um, uh, Jesus gave in Luke of the uh, the rich man and the poor man Lazarus, right? Uh, and both of them died and uh, went in. Uh, the uh, rich man went into torment, and the poor man went into paradise. And Abraham was there, and. Um, the, the, the rich man in his torment begged Abraham to let him to go back and warn his family of the judgment that was imminently coming. And uh, Abraham said, you know what, um, even if a man rises from the dead, they're not going to believe. Why? Because they already have Moses and the prophets. They already have the Bible um, and they already have the details of what God has done. They've already got the details of the works of the Lord. And if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, if they don't believe Genesis, then a man rising from the dead is going to convince them of nothing. OK, take that point because it's a poignant point, but let's flip it for a second, because if people can read Genesis, if people can understand Moses and the prophets, if people can see the works of the Lord, which are described in Moses and the prophets and can believe because it is a reasonable and truthful account of what actually happened, then all of a sudden what happens to the dead man rising? Not only does it become believable, but it becomes essential because you see the Christ who did die and did rise again from the dead is founded in those first books of the Bible. It starts when God called out light into the darkness. It starts when the man sinned and God gave the promise of the seed who was Jesus Christ to come. You see, the whole purpose of these museums are not to get people to believe in creation. Because at the end of the day, believing in a creation doesn't actually save you. Being a creationist doesn't actually save you. Putting your trust and faith in the creator is what saves you. The creator being Jesus Christ, who has done a wonderful world of creating a good world, a good world that got cursed because man sinned and Christ in his goodness continued to do a good work. And he chose for himself a people that he would bring a savior through. That savior was himself, Jesus Christ. And it's this savior who came and died on a cross. That's where the real good news comes in. And that's really the purpose 
in all of these museums is to bring glory to Christ and to spread the gospel. So I'm going to finish there on those uh, few uh, Bible verses as a way of uh, introduction, but we're actually going to go over to Craig now for um, his uh, his um, first uh, for our first sort of museum session as we have a look around the different museums. So Craig, do you want to give us a little bit of the background of the uh, Tasmanian Museum and a bit of an introduction because I know we've got a, a video to show as well in just a couple of minutes but uh, Craig over to you for uh, your little section now oh I think we um not getting any sound from correct correct he's on mute yeah, sorry my um, fault yeah so Rochelle and I both got science backgrounds and we had both had a, a passion for doing something uh with creation at some point um We'd supported various creation things over the years. And uh, we connected up with John um, in the early 2000s again. I, I, I did know and meet John when I was much younger, but um, I had sort of lost lost contact over the years. And, uh, yeah, reconnected in the early 2000s and um, did some ministry. We did a debate against the Atheist Foundation, and that sort of started to build up uh, my focus and interest in the in the area um, we came across some other friends the Foley's Brendan and Diane and we met for a number of years uh, just planning this idea that we had we didn't have any resources or anything like that but um, in the end we had this uh, relatively small space but it's it's a very handy space um, become available in between two fairly well-known tourist attractions Seahorse World which we own and and uh, Platypus House, which is uh, showing the unique Australian monotreme uh, mammals. And, uh, yeah, so there's a lot of tourists walking past each each day. So we started to set that up way back in 2017 or maybe even 16. But we, we got it uh, up and going uh, in 2021. So it took us a few years to in between work and on weekends and all that sort of stuff doing some fundraisers at churches and, and so on to try and raise funds to to get underway. So that's where we're at now. Um, our numbers have uh, increased dramatically in the last 12 months or so. Um, we've done a little bit of advertising in tourist publications. So Tasmania is great as an island because uh, you really only have to advertise at the entry points to tourists. Uh, either the airports or where the ferry comes across if you can get that you're going to get a lot of the, the visitors to the island so um yeah so we, we've had a few thousand people come through the museum now in that time and uh including believers non-believers uh, we had some uh non-believers come through in the last couple of days and and um interestingly look at it get challenged take a bit of material and um, it's up to them now to to do with what they will with the information that they've got. Mm. Yeah, so I've got a over the time on creation conversations, we've shown various displays that we have at the museum. I, I've done a little video just on a couple of the displays that we have got that we might not have shown much about. So perhaps now's the time. Is it Joe that you want to show that? Yep, that works fine. We'll uh, we'll pull that up and play that now. So just bear with me one second because it's just up here, and um, here we go. All right. 
one of the displays we like to show people to get them thinking about the way they think about this subject, the creation evolution subject, is to bring them to this box that we've made. It's called What's Your View? And in this box, um, at the back of it, there's a, a white card. I'll just move that fossil out of the road. There's a white card there. And on that, there's a black arrow that just drawn on with a black texter. And the arrow is pointing either that way or it's pointing this way. Uh, this way is error. You can see it down here on the sign. And this way is truth. So what you have to do first up is to come and look at this hole in here and see which way the arrow is pointing to. So come on over and we'll have a look what the um, hole there is showing the arrow pointing to. So there you go, it's a little bit hard to get the camera looking through that hole but you can see that the arrow is pointing to the left towards error. Okay, so we've seen that it's pointing to the left on the bottom hole here. Now we're going to look through the top hole and we lift this card up the back so it's the same arrow. Uh, there's not two arrows in there, there's only the one arrow. There's no mirrors, so let's see what's this is pointing at now. So you can see the arrow is now pointing to towards me, towards the right hand side as you look at it. So what's going on? It's the same arrow, it's pointing to error on the bottom, it's pointing to truth on the top. In actual fact, the arrow is pointing this way, that is the truth, it is pointing this way. So what's happening on the bottom hole? Well, what's happening is we've got a glass of water there and that diffracts the light and bends it so it's pointing towards error. And what we're trying to show people out of this is how the way you view evidence can be influenced by your worldview. In other words, we've got a fossil here. This is from Permian Rock in Tasmania and it's full of shell fossils. Have a look at it, up nice and close. It's all through them, around the sides. Now, Permian rock in the evolutionary understanding is over 200 million years old and it's full of extinct creatures called brachiopods. So this Permian rock can be regarded as 200 million years old if you want, or you can view it as I do, that this is evidence of catastrophic processes, there's creatures all jumbled up, and where you find this, there's millions of them there, um, it occurs in a similar bed that occurs uh, across huge parts of Tasmania, and even up into the mainland, there's rounded stones in here, I think it's evidence of Noah's flood. So here we have two different views, one of them has to be wrong. What we contend is that if you omit God out of the equation and you have to come up with an evolutionary story that's millions of years old, then you're looking through a glass of water and diffracting this evidence to point in a different direction. We um, believe that if you look at this through the clear view of God's word, scripture, you come up with the right answer and that this is something 
that's occurred as a result of catastrophic processes during the time of Noah's flood. We had a young family come into the museum one day and the husband, who was a, a Catholic background, said that his wife Kelly wouldn't uh, believe unless uh, someone could prove to her that God existed. So I said to Kelly, if I could give you strong evidence that there must be a God, would you come in? And she said, yes. And this is where I first brought her and the family to our bacterial flagellum model, which we have shown uh, photos of before on Creation Conversations. But this uh, model is really effective in showing the complexity in one of the so-called simplest organisms known, a bacteria. So the flagellum is the tail on the end of a bacteria. You can see it up here. Um, there's a little model of a bacteria. They're so small you can fit 8 million bacteria on the head of a pin. There you are, the tail's spinning there. And that's how they can move along. Now the makeup of the motor that drives this tail is in fact very complex. And this is a depiction of that, uh, made by Ian Juby over in Canada and we got it by Vance Nelson, which was fantastic. So you can push this button and this one spins as well. I don't get in the road there too much. That one spins around and it's got all the components. We've got a human made motor here. It actually has the same sorts of components and you can spin it around. And the kids love to do that, of course. But what we're actually showing here is the complexity of the bacterial setup and you need all of these components for it to work and you can't uh, have a bacteria survive if any of these parts are missing so how can that possibly come together without design and a design always means a design after we showed kelly this and uh, spoke about design a little bit more with our Lego models inside, I asked her, have I been able to convince you that there must be a God? And she said, yes, you have. And she took a Bible with her and she's a real reader. So we're hoping that she's reading that now and learning more about who the designer is. This has been a really interesting display at our museum, especially for some of our Chinese visitors, but it's interesting for everybody, I think. It's a picture of the bronze tree of Sansing Du. I think I said that right, Sansing Du. Uh, it's about four meters high in reality. It was found in 1986 in China. And the Chinese authorities don't know how to explain what it is. They believe it's to be about 4,000 years old. And this tree has got um, birds on it. Um, it's got sharp knife-like leaves that seem to indicate that it's a dangerous sort of tree. Um, but if you look really closely down here, you'll see there's a hand. There's a female hand here. And just in front of it, there's a, a sword or a, a knife blade. Now this knife blade seems to be warning this hand, danger, don't come near here. Also right here, is a long tail of a serpent. And when you follow the serpent down and look at the head, it's actually got legs. So anyone who knows the biblical story of Eve in the Garden of Eden being tempted by a serpent with legs to go to a tree that God had warned her not to go near, 
then you'll understand this story. If you don't, like the Chinese authorities apparently, then you won't understand what the story is about. We think this might be a Babel artifact from after the Tower of Babel when the uh, different uh, people groups moved throughout the world. The group that moved here still remembered the story of uh, Adam and Eve in the garden that their ancestors would have told them. So after the Tower of Babel, obviously as people scattered around the world, you'd expect them to have similar stories of their history. And if the flood was true, uh, then you'd expect them to have stories of the flood go down through their cultures. And that's in fact what you find. And so people that visit the museum can come and read some of these stories from Hawaii and uh, the, the god Nu'u that they have there, um, and uh, the Scandinavians, the American Indians in Hudson Bay, Australian Aboriginals, and so on, others. And most cultures on the earth have a story of a global flood. All right. Thank you very much for that, Craig. That was, uh, that was fantastic. And it's great to get a nice little... Uh, wander around the uh, the museum and see a few of the different uh, highlights there and uh, I actually saw Craig's museum in the works uh, in 2018 so what's that three years before it uh, before it opened um, and it was looking pretty good even back then so I'm uh, very much looking forward to get over there and, and see it at some point um, so <clears throat> Let's uh, let's move on to uh, our next museum, and then after this one, we'll probably have a bit of a break and have a look at questions and thank yous. But uh, let's move uh, swiftly on to uh, Diane, uh, because you're going to uh, give us a little bit about the Jurassic Ark Museum. But then I think as well, in in, in lieu of John, uh, we'll have a, a quick little sneak peek at some of the Brisbane Museum as well from you. So Diane, over to you for our next museum, Jurassic Ark in Gympie. Australia. Yes, yes, people think that museums are old buildings full of dusty dead things. Well, we have a museum full of live things because we have an outdoor museum and we still call it a museum because, as Joseph said, we want people to come and think. We want people to come and see the evidence of God's handiwork in the real world and think about it. So we have a museum which has some dead things. It started off as uh, a fossil find uh, and we've continued to work on that. But around that, we've planted some gardens because we want people to understand the real history of the real world, which is actually told from the Bible. Uh, so if we could just go to my slides, um, we'll just have a quick look at some of the things uh, that we have in the gardens. And what we're trying to do here is show some, some of the uh, lovely things that we have uh, for people to come and enjoy when you, uh, when you go to a garden. Of course, you uh, get to enjoy lots of uh, beautiful things. Um, and, uh, but we've also got uh, some things to think about and to help you understand uh, the evidence of God's work in the world of creation, judgment, and salvation. Uh, so you can come along and uh, 
see some beautiful things like some orchids. This garden is in Queensland, which has uh, a warm climate all the year round. So you get to see some lovely um, tropical orchids, which are growing outside. You don't need to have them in a conservatory or a greenhouse. Um, but we also like to um, show people how we can tell the history of the world in plants. Now, of course, God created the plants, we're told that, and we're told that he created them after their kind. Now, a lot of people can confuse kind with species, and so we like to explain a little bit about that. Here we have lots of different species of plants. Um, they're very different from one another, and but within the kinds, you can get quite a lot of variation. So when we say after their kind or according to their kind, that doesn't mean that every plant of that kind is precisely the same. There is a lot of variation. So here we've got quite uh, a few different kinds, but if we just look at one kind, if you look on the right there, there are some bright orange flowers there, uh, and they are uh, some very small orchids and, here is one of the flower heads there and you can see at the top there's a cross-shaped um, little flower in this inflorescence and these are called crucifix orchids and we particularly like these because of that uh, that link of course with the cross but uh, also they are very beautiful and they're reasonably hardy and so they will we have these growing throughout the gardens um, and so you can come along and enjoy these and enjoy all the different colors. Uh, now, another kind we have is uh, a garden um, which is full of plants that are all of the one kind, but you can see here that there's lots of variety. There are big ones and small ones and green ones and red ones. And uh, if, if you come and look at this garden, you'll see that there are striped ones and spotted ones. Uh, but they all have something in common. You can see that that basic shape, that basic form that's the same. And this is the bromeliad kind. Now, if you're not familiar with bromeliads, uh, you might not be familiar with all of these ones, but here is a clue as to uh, what bromeliads are. Um, do you recognize this fruit? Now, you won't be able to buy one of these in the fruit shop. You wouldn't want to there. <laughs> These are only very small, but you've probably seen the big version of this. What does that look like? <laughs> and uh, yes, it is actually a pineapple. It's a miniature pineapple, right? It's only got a small fruit and a big head of leaves there. Um, a, bit like, a bit of the inverse of the ones that you see in the fruit shop, which have a big fruit with uh, a small, smaller head of leaves. But all the structure, that basic form is the same. So we have lots of variation within kind. And uh, here are uh, here's some of the, the two extremes here. Uh, see that very big flower head there that is almost six foot tall because that fence behind there with the shade cloth is, is six feet tall. But look, hanging on uh, that, that uh, wooden tree stump behind there, you can see a whole lot of really tiny weeny little plants there. Those are all bromeliads as well. So after their kind, lots of wonderful variety that God has built into the creation. So we see lots of beautiful things and lots of intriguing things which show that things were made 
according to their kinds, separate, distinct kinds, but wonderful variety because our God is the God who filled the world with beautiful, wonderful things. Now, as we said, uh, Jurassic Ark started out uh, when <clears throat> some fossilised logs were found uh, at what what is one end of the garden now when uh, the owner of the property uh, was uh, extending... Um, uh, an area there to build uh, a, a water reservoir and found a whole lot of petrified wood. And he rang up, he was a friend of ours, rang up John's, oh, I found some petrified wood, would you like to come and see it? And of course, John couldn't resist an invitation like that to come and see some fossils. And sure enough, this is not just a few pieces of petrified wood. In fact, this is a huge fossil log jam full of really huge logs. And uh, Here's Daryl, who is the curator who looks after um, the site now, looks after the gardens and also helps with the, uh, the fossil um, digging and the fossil uh, research that we're doing there. And you can see there, there's one of the logs there. They're very, very large, but there are a whole, a whole lot of small ones all jammed together. This is a giant fossil log jam. And we've had uh, some uh, ground penetrating radar scan done of the whole area and there are thousands of logs in this whole area. We've only dug up uh, a small number of them. But the other interesting thing is they are extremely well preserved, uh, so much so that you can see the internal structure where they have broken up um, and they are mineralized so they're quite um, they're, they're quite. Uh, brittle, they will crack open. But if, if that happens, you can see the internal structure, uh, which means you can work out what kind, what plant kind or tree kind these come from. And it turns out that they are from Auricaria pines or southern pine trees. Now, those trees still grow literally in the same area. Uh, they're called southern pine trees because they're only found living uh, these days in the southern hemisphere, which means they grow in Australia, not just in Queensland. They gr grow all over the place. So we thought, well, here is another confirmation of after their kind, as it says in the Bible, in that these things still grow, southern pine trees, so we'll plant some right next to the place where we have the fossils. And so we have this little grove of trees here. Now, this is the end result of, um, uh, well, a dozen years at least of, uh, of growth. This little plot started out as a whole lot of tiny little trees that, that we planted with, uh, with tons and tons of mulch. This area is fairly barren, actually. There's basically no soil there. We had to bring in lots and lots of mulch and... Um, and worms and uh, and various other things to literally create soil. There, there was very little here, but uh, now after after all of this growth and uh, and it was a bit of a battle. Um, we've had to battle with droughts and floods and marauding goats and various other things. But we have this lovely little grove of trees, which we call the um, <clears throat> the living fossil forest. And because Auricaria pines are a classic example of living fossils, that is, organisms or things that are alive now that are the same 
as their fossils. Now, the fossils are classified as Jurassic, hence the name of the, uh, the site, Jurassic Ark, um, because the rock layers around this region in Gympie are classified as Jurassic. So we're talking, you know, 100 million years old, uh, according to the evolutionary timetable. Well, if they really were that old, then Auricaria pines have multiplied after their kind for a long time. But we don't believe they're that old. But however old they are, they have multiplied after their kind. They haven't changed. Now, you've probably spotted that there are other things in that grove of trees besides uh, Oricaria pine trees. We thought, well, yes, there are other living fossils that people might be familiar with, like palm trees, like cycads. Um, and so we have a whole lot of these in our living fossil forest. And just to reinforce the point, um, one of the petrified logs that we had dug out and actually removed from the uh, from the log jam site, we've put in there, so it's standing there on its end, uh, just to reinforce the point. Um, there is the uh, fossilized uh, tree tree um, standing on its end in the upright position. We've we've held it there along with uh, other um, living fossils around it. Uh, and we've also got a few small dinosaurs there just for good measure because people love dinosaurs. And so we have those scattered throughout the, the area of well. So we have evidence of creation in the uh, beautiful things that God has made. Uh, later on in a few weeks' time, we've got a whole uh, program on flowers. So uh, I won't talk about flowers at the moment. Uh, but we do have lots of lovely evidence of um, beautiful creation and design. Uh, but we've also got evidence of God creating after their kind, as it says quite clearly in Genesis. Now, uh, plants didn't stay the same. There's been a lot of change uh, in, the, in the world of plants. And we're, again, we're told about that in the Bible because uh, we're told that God cursed the ground. Now, that happened as a result of sin entering the world and as part of God's judgment. So we not only see creation, we also see God's judgment. So this is a garden uh, that we've planted, and uh, we would be the only people in the world who have deliberately planted a garden that has weeds and thorns in it. Uh, most gardeners try to avoid thorns, but we want to make a point. And uh, so we have here are some of the uh, leaves of some of the, remember the bromeliads? Now, these are still the same kind of plant, but within the variation that you have, there are some there that have very smooth leaves and some of them have sawtooth leaves on the edges there. You can see a whole lot of little spikes there. So... Even though God did um, curse the ground and said that the plants would change, that they would grow, thorn there would be thorns and thistles, they are still within the same kind. What has happened there is a degenerative process where there's a mismatch between in, in the growth so that um, the uh, edges there have these spikes where the um, internal plumbing has um, projected out beyond beyond the edges of the leaves. And we have talked about thorns in one of our uh, previous programs um, and uh, the um, uh, how that's come about. Now, we've also got 
a, a small mural there throughout the gardens. We've got a number of murals which help people understand the uh, the biblical history of the world because a lot of people don't know it. Now, as well as these more exotic sort of um, spiny plants, we do have some more familiar ones like lemon trees and roses uh, that you can come along and see. So we have evidence of creation. We have evidence of um, God's judgment. Now, of course, the biggest judgment that God uh, has meted out on the whole world is uh, Noah's flood. And then after the flood, the world um, was very different. And so we have some Australian plants because people often ask us, well, why does, God, why does Australia have such weird plants? Uh, did God make separate plants just for Australia? Um, uh, that's an idea that was actually floated by Charles Darwin, uh, uh, that uh, the plants and animals in Australia might have been the result of a... Um, uh, of a separate creation. He didn't believe that, but it was just part of his musing in his diary. He, he wrote that on his visit to Australia. Um, and we do have some rather interesting plants here. This is a plant um, that's called a grass tree, although when I was growing up, these were called black boys, but that, that's no longer politically correct. Um, but uh, this is another example of um, God's judgment, the fact that uh, Australian plants are rather strange. Now, of course, the most iconic plants in, in uh, Australia are gum trees, but we have lots of other um, typically Australian plants there. And what has happened is that after the flood, you have extremes of seasons. And so some plants could only survive in certain areas whereas other plants have died out. So there was a great sorting out process after the flood. And uh, another way of describing that is natural selection. Natural selection is a real process, but it is the result of some things surviving in more extreme climates, whereas other things have died out. It's nothing to do with evolution. So we are surrounded by gum trees at Jurassic Arc, and they didn't evolve here. They simply survived here, whereas other things have not. So at Jurassic Arc, we have creation after their kinds. We have evidence of sin and judgment uh, in the thorny plants where God said cursed is the ground. And we have examples of uh, plants that whose distribution is the result of um, natural and man-made selection after the flood. So do come to Jurassic Arc, and uh, I think it might be the world's only outdoor living museum. I'm not sure if we can claim that, that record, but certainly um, it's uh, an outdoor living creation museum. So come along and see the, the works of the creator. Uh, now, I think we, is it about time we had a break? Do we have any questions or any thank yous or other things to do uh, now? I think that's a good idea. And we'll come mm. on to the uh, to the Brisbane Museum in a little bit because we've got um, mm. slides from yourself, I know, and uh, from Craig as well, actually. So, yeah, Sam, over to you. Why don't we have a few thank yous mm. and some mm. questions mm. for the next 10 minutes or so? 
Alright guys, let's do some thank yous. We've got Doki Doki Bible Club coming in strong at the start with uh, 99 US Santa Rosa smiling face with sunglasses. Thank you so much Doki. Uh, we've also got Redefine Living coming in with 399 US Buckaroos pair character exaggeratingly stretching his arm forward to offer a cup of coffee. I have a cup of coke, it'll have to do. Um, but uh, we've also had a very, very generous donation come in from uh, Douglas Boffey, who's coming with 50 five zero British buckaroos, a pair, a giant pair character waving flags and turning around, making the buildings in front of him tremble. I can do a bit of a desk wobble. There you go. I uh, want to see that reenacted, Sam. Come on. I want to uh, see the buildings I'm gonna tremble. Take, I'm going to have to... Uh, the turnaround, I'm going to have to take off my headphones. Hang on, right. Okay. Yeah. Woo! There you go. There we go. Right, there we go. I, ca I can't. I yeah, couldn't do it with headphones on because I'm currently yeah. tethered to the microphone. So anyway, <laughs> uh, value for your money, Douglas. Value for your money. There you go. Thank you very much, Douglas. God bless you. It's very, very kind. Um, right. Okay. So let's do some questions. Um, as we've just done some plants, this is a, a relevant question as comes in from uh, Redefine Living. Uh, creation research, have flowering plants ever been found in a Permian age rock anywhere ever? Well, um, I'll briefly comment and maybe Diane would like to comment on sort of flower evolution and, and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, from... Um, there are some reports of what could be called proto-angiosperms, that's sort of the precursor to uh, flowering plants being found in the Permian. But you have to bear in mind that Permian rocks, um, number one, their ages keep changing. Number two, rocks that used to be Permian had things discovered in them that made them think, according to evolution, that they can't be Permian, so they renamed them. Um, a classic case is the... Uh, permo-triassic layers uh, in Newcastle in Australia, uh, where you have the polystrate trees, which I've also seen as another subject of the uh, of the chat as well. Um, when John first went there, they were determined to be Permian, and then a number of uh, fossils were found, fossil plants were found, which made them think, oh, it's a bit too early to be Permian, we'll reclassify them as Triassic, and then they were currently classified as permo-triassic, which is, it could be one, it could be others, we're not quite sure, we'll stick them somewhere in the middle. Um, in other words, a a lot of the dating is often arbitrary. Now, in terms of um, things like flowering plants, in terms of uh, not being found uh, below the, uh, the, the the Permian, you've got to remember, again, for ages, it was a uh, thought that flowering plants first evolved um, towards the end of the Cretaceous. In fact, one of the um, prevailing theories actually before the uh, asteroid hypothesis is that the extinction of the dinosaurs came about as a result of flowering plants evolving and dinosaurs being unable to cope with the pollen and getting hay fever and dying. It's a, it's a serious, serious hypothesis about how the dinosaurs died out. Um, it's fairly well documented now that there were uh, are well established angiosperms that's flowering plants in the Triassic, um, so that's edging closer to the Permian. Um, and so, really, dinosaurs. Uh, if you view the the history of the, the, if you view the geological column of a history of time, and you put the dinosaurs in a certain time frame, then flowers were always there um, throughout the throughout the the time of the dinosaurs, as it were, so called. Um, another again, another problem is that you they found uh, bees in the Triassic, supposedly a hundred million years before uh, flowers 
plants were supposed to have evolved. So these poor bees have got to wait around for 100 million years for something to pollinate. Um, and uh, the biggest problem with all of it is that uh, there has been uh, pollen, and this was reported on in secular literature, there was pollen discovered in Precambrian rocks. And really it hasn't been dealt with fully. But it, again, it goes to show the arbitrary nature of both the geological column as well as the dating system, because um, in our Living Fossils exhibition, which we just did mm. uh, at the conference that we've just set up upstairs, right? Um, there's a beautiful fossil stromatolite. It's about so big, right? And you see, I saw an exact same, it's from Bolivia in South America. I saw an exact same uh, type of this fossil from the same deposit in uh, the Houston Museum of Natural Science. And it was dated to 3.7 billion years old. It was supposedly and historically, it's been reported as the oldest fossil uh, in the world, one of the first ever uh, organisms to have evolved. However, if you look it up online, this Bolivian stromatolite, you'll find that in the last two years, it's been reclassified as 70 million years old, putting it in the Cretaceous. So it's gone from 3.7 billion years to 70 million years because the data didn't quite line up. And so they just literally reclassified the rock formation as being Cretaceous, not Precambrian. And so you've lost several billion years worth of history. Now, if you can just reclassify rocks like that based on a single fossil that you find in it, um, it's no wonder that the rocks are classified nowadays not based on rock type, but based on a view of evolution. And so you fit the rocks in to where you think they work in terms of evolution, not where they necessarily are in the actual uh, real world, because you'll find in the real world that there are huge gaps in between rock layers. The Grand Canyon is missing nearly 90% uh, of the supposed time on Earth that it represents. So uh, it really is kind of an, an, an arbitrary argument. And the final point I'll make is the absence of a fossil doesn't actually give you any evidence um, one way or another um, because you can't have claimed to have found uh, all the fossils that you're ever going to found, find in that deposit because it's just basically impossible. So you can't really take a, a, a an absence of a fossil and argue for a particular view of the world as a result of it. It's um, a little bit logically inconsistent. But Diane, any comments on the um, evolution of flowering plants or anything like that? Well, wherever they've been found, they've been fully formed flowering plants. The same with the pollen grains have been uh, recognisable. Uh, pollen grains are as distinctive as any other um, aspect of, uh, of a plant anatomy. Uh, so flowering plants, wherever they've been found, have multiplied after their kind, no matter how old you want to uh, label the rock layers around them. Uh, they're just fully formed flowering plants. Very good. Great stuff. Uh, any other comments for the team? Well, let's move on to another question. Just real quick, the, the area that we were digging in, they don't find any flowering plants. Um, but well below the layers that we were digging in, we found uh, in one of his past digs a petrified tree. And it was in a layer that was over 100 million years old. But when they tested it for carbon, it came out to be 40,000 years old but the interesting thing is the wood would still burn <laughs> that's a that's a, a, a that's a more common phenomenon than a lot of people mm. realize finding fossil wood that is um 
petrified on the mm. outside, right, to a depth yes, of yes. maybe two or three inches. But when you split it inside, there's still fresh wood in there. In other words, the permeation of the minerals have mm. not actually gone into the wood. They have basically entrapped the wood inside because part of it has been permineralized, mm. part of it has been calcified. You've trapped fresh wood inside, and it's not until you expose it and break it open. Um, so you can still smell fresh wood, and you can burn it sometimes. Um, and so uh, it's a, a fairly common f phenomena that is sort of unheard of uh, outside of those people who actually do their own tests and break the things open and try mm. and burn it for themselves so yeah and what does that I say think... about the um the, the geologic column being defined by the fossils exactly it's it's, it's an arbitrary argument and in fact i think i'm just running things to the back of my head craig and diane may be able to comment on this i think that John has done similar testing with the wood from Jurassic Ark in terms of burning. He has. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. Sure I was. Um, yeah, he's burned there. We, well, I also did it last year. Um, a, a local farmer had uh, put a borehole down uh, 70 metres 70 meters through basalt and hit some um, uh, fossilised timber. Uh, it was charcoal, and, and we burnt it. I was there while, while we burnt it. It, yeah. it, it, it glowed up. No problems at all. All right. Well, um, we, we better actually move on then because we are starting to run out of time and I'm, mm. I know we've got a little video at the end. So um, we'll come back to some questions if we've got time at the end. But very briefly, because we do have an absence of John um, and we do need to keep it uh, keep it fairly brief. But Diane, why don't you just bring up the rest of your slides uh, in uh, particular talking about the, the Brisbane Museum, which is a, a new development uh, in creation research that's happened over the last um, well, the last year really, um, really ramped up in the last few months. So we'll just bring your slides up on the screen now. And um, there they are. And so, uh, yeah, if you just want to um, take us uh, a little bit through some of the uh, Brisbane Museum, because I know that uh, aside from John, it's been yourself and mm. Craig been heavily involved in this project. So just very briefly, give us a, a quick rundown. Yes, I've just got a few pictures from our recent open day. This is a, a new development in that uh, John has literally thousands of fossils stored away over the many years. I think Craig has a, a photo of them we'll, we'll look at later on. Um, but earlier this year, we were offered space in a building by one of our supporters um, who said uh, that we could use uh, some of the space in this large building, uh, a big sort of warehouse type building. And uh, so we naturally took took up that offer. And uh, so we've set up the, the beginnings of uh, an indoor museum uh, in Brisbane itself, uh, whereas Jurassic Ark is outside of Brisbane. It's a bit north of Brisbane. Um, but uh, this is in the Brisbane area, so it's a lot more accessible to the people who live in southeast Queensland and also to the tourists who uh, come into southeast Queensland. And so we've had a couple of open days. We're still working on this. Um, it's very much a work in progress, but we like to share it with uh, people as, uh, as much as we can. So this was from our first open day when people arrived they would be welcomed by um, Velociraptor except this is the movie style Velociraptor the real Velociraptor is a lot smaller than that and we, we've uh, spoken about that in some of our other programs and uh, 
So here are some of the people at uh, one of our more recent open days, and there's Craig, and he is explaining about um, some things to do with Velociraptor because one of the um, other uh, fake aspects of Velociraptor is that uh, it's now being uh, presented as having feathers. So not only is it a lot bigger than the, uh, the movie one is a lot bigger than the real one, uh, they're even trying to put feathers even on the fossil casts. And so uh, there's Craig there explaining uh, a little bit about that. So we have fossils on display and we also have uh, murals uh, to explain the background of some of the fossils so that people can see and think and understand. Uh, and a lot of the uh, most popular fossils, of course, are the big monsters. So here we have uh, a Spinosaurus head, and uh, this family were really enjoying uh, Spinosaurus here. And uh, the other thing that people think about the, the monsters that God made is that they had to be vicious killers. So here we've put together a display um, and that uh, long mural at the back there was made by our colleague Steve, who is a brilliant artist. And we've got the evidence there of um, some T-Rex fossils and some of the information that we know about uh, T-Rex. And of course, everyone thinks T-Rex had to be a ferocious killer. But if you look at the actual evidence, uh, it doesn't work mainly because uh, T-Rex's teeth um, could not have been that of a killer. They're shallow-rooted, they easily fall out, they are sharp, but sharp teeth do not make an animal a killer. It just means it's got good uh, cutting ability. Uh, that can be used on fruit as much as it can be used on anything else. And so uh, we've got some T-Rex teeth there, and we've got... Uh, some fossils of the uh, the hands. T-Rex had uh, very famous for having these tiny, um, almost degenerate hands. So <clears throat> we uh, take on some of the myths, as it were, that come out through uh, popular belief about dinosaurs being big and fierce. They weren't all big and fierce, but they certainly are the monsters that God made, and they're the dragons that praise the Lord. Um, we've also got uh, beautiful original slabs of uh, some fossilised fish here showing mixed environments and things like sudden burial. Everyone thinks that fossils uh, are formed slowly and gradually uh, and after things sink to the bottom. That's not true. It can't be true because um, all of the fossils that we have found uh, particularly these fish fossils, they have so much uh, fine detail in them. They had to be buried rapidly. So we've got lots of evidence there of things that are buried rapidly. And uh, here is uh, another, uh, if you look at the back here, um, here we have the world's biggest wombat jaw. And this was found by a local farmer uh, up, in, um, up near Toowoomba, which is a, a, a place to, uh, west of Brisbane and eventually donated to Creation Research. So it is possible for you to uh, find things and uh, and be involved, like with, uh, with Glenn's uh, expedition there. Uh, 
you can go out, be involved in digging out fossils, and who knows, your fossil may end up being in a museum. And again, to give you an idea of how big this thing is, we have an artist's impression there of just the head of this wombat, really, really huge. So lots of interesting things to see which reinforce what we are told about the biblical history of the world. The world started out good. It's gone downhill because of judgment. So we have creation and we have God's judgment there all on display for you to see and to think about. And if we can come back to us now, um, Craig, I think you have a few photos relating to um, the fossil collection that uh, we hope to eventually have a lot more of on display there. Uh, yeah, yeah. I just quickly put together a couple of slides uh, to show a bit more of the Brisbane Museum since John didn't uh, uh, wasn't able to make it with us. So I don't know if you want to put those up, Joe or Sam, if you'd like to. So. Um, it was a real blessing that uh, Des, the owner of the business, mm. had made this space available. And there's a couple of the rows of the um, fossils that have been sorted and catalogued by Karen. And uh, I'm not sure if you really get the impression with that, but there's just heaps of them. Those, those containers mm. are chock-a-block full uh, with all sorts of fossils. Um, one of the great displays the museum could have in the future is a trilobite display. It'd have to be uh, certainly a leading trilobite display in Australia, if not uh, in the world, uh, because John's got some absolute fantastic uh, examples of them. Mm. Uh, so, it, and this is probably about uh, half or, or less of the collection that he's got in, in Australia. Uh, he's still yeah. a lot work through and uh, you can see some shelf space there that will undoubtedly be filled or maybe even somewhat filled since I took that photo and that's Derek our Tasmanian volunteer who came up with us as well and helped do the filming of the little clip I showed earlier um, now there we go so mm. that's just a different angle with the Spinosaurus there you can see the uh, the timeline up on the top left of that picture that we um, had in our museum and let the Brisbane Museum use as well, but there's lots of other signage and great casts and things that you can see there as well. Th those fish fossils that Diane um, showed a really good photo of, some of these fossils are worth tens of thousands of dollars um, in, in today's world. Um, so I'm not... I'm not uh, sure that John sort of spent that sort of amount of money getting them. Um, but uh, certainly now the value of some of these things has skyrocketed. So, and some of his biggest fossils aren't even on display yet. They're still uh, back in storage. So uh, as we continue to work on the museum and maybe get a new museum site that's being uh, spoken about, um, some of these really big fossils hopefully will be put on display and and that's just a few more angles there of some of the the fossils that are currently on display so that's uh that's all i've got there joe if you want to come back to the group thank you very much for that 
Craig, and yeah, it's really exciting to see these projects really start to take off and yeah. uh, and develop all around the world. So it's uh, it's exciting things, including uh, what we've got in the UK. So we'll just uh, quickly just uh, show you one or two very brief slides. Uh, um, starting with a uh, a very young me, um, way back in two thousand and fourteen, in the tiny little museum which we developed in Norfolk uh, in the United Kingdom. And you can see there I am with John. Uh, we were just getting involved in things uh, at this time with the kind of work of creation research. And you can see it was fairly basic. It was one room which we'd uh, kind of developed and we actually ended up going on to develop um, uh, a much better layout uh, in that uh, in that uh, room and, and laying all the fossils out and the fossil types that we got began to develop and so on and so forth. It got bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, Things you were so young, you could grow a beard, Joe. I know. I was, yeah, it was very, <laughs> uh, very early days of sort of whiskers at that point. But uh, it, we still have this fossil uh, in the museum. It's actually now part of our Living Fossils exhibition, which you can go. We just put up a tour of the Living Fossils exhibition online. So uh, go and check that out. Um, it's a crocodile skull. And you know it's a crocodile skull because it looks like a crocodile skull because it hasn't evolved in 70 odd million years of supposed time so even back then the evidence was pretty good and we got to take people around and do talks and lectures and take them out on field trips and i've been digging up fossils since i was six years old so even by the time when i was 16 when i first got involved with uh, creation research we still had a pretty decent volume of fossils um our fossil teddy bear we still have that some of the trilobites it's amazing as the collection began to grow and get bigger and bigger as we developed more and more fossils and began to put more and more things on display and finally opened the Genesis Museum of Creation, which became the Genesis Museum of Creation Research, which eventually we had to close in 2020 due to COVID. And uh, by this point, I'd now uh, taken over as the director of the ministry in the UK. And uh, we'd traveled around and collated all of John's collections from all over the UK. And we'd grown our collection and it's continued to grow and develop massively over the last few years um, and we really began to hone in on these bible verses and wanting to get these things on display well last year we ended up being able to get the creation research center you can see our tagline that we spoke about earlier where dragons praise the lord there's the building as it looked when we first got it it was an old uh, fireplace showroom we cleaned it all up we had to dismantle all of this M space inside it was a huge volume of work that we needed to do to get this all cleared and organized and sorted out um upstairs it was got all these uh, strange places for the filing and we've really developed it way beyond all of this now um and it looks really rather spectacular it made a buzz on the first day that we moved in because we had dinosaurs and all sorts. In fact, you see the dinosaur on the left-hand side of me there, the big giant T-Rex head, which you'll see in the video very shortly. Um, we came across a dilemma because it didn't actually fit through the doorway. And so what we had to do on the very first day is we had to uh, actually to remove the window you see the giant glass window there to the left we actually had to remove all the putty and uh, lift out that massive frame of glass which we were terrified of uh, in order to fit the dinosaur through the window which just fit and uh, then have to put all the window back in again uh, all on the first day so exciting and interesting times uh, but it really has developed developed along 
from there. We had our first open day last year. Like I said, we had our uh, minister's open day just a couple of days ago, and it's really developing on. Um, okay, we've got a little video, uh, which was actually well. It's interesting because when did we film this, Sam? It would have been a couple of months uh, back. July, I want to say July. Yeah, it was a few, a few it months was a, ago. It was a few months, few months ago. Um, and uh, I have to say, it's actually technically out of date yeah. uh, because there's still stuff that we are developing so fast and doing stuff so quickly. And uh, we're really looking forward to having uh, Diane come back again and visit us uh, a little bit later mm. in the year. And we'll do some more around the museum with Joe mm. and Diane because it's really all coming together. And actually, just, a, on, just on that point, as, as you, I was just about to mention that you actually took the words right out of my mouth. If you If you actually watch around the museum with Joe and Diane, you can see sort of the museum start to take shape as the episodes oh. progress until sort of the last episode where it sort of all basically comes together apart from a few bits which have been yeah. shoved into a corner out of the way <laughs> and we've really really uh, developed it since then um we've we've big uh, we've put up uh, whole displays upstairs and all sorts and we're really developing this self-guiding kind of system so it's getting exciting but uh, sam i'm going to go over to you um to uh, to play our, our our little video um if you want to get that up for us because it's uh, it's about time that we watch this last little video and round things off for this evening all right then let's uh, let's get this playing Good day, guys, and welcome to the Creation Research Centre here in Oswestria. We want to take you around uh, a little bit of an overview of the centre now and just tell you a little bit about what we're trying to do here because, yes, it's a museum and, yes, we have fabulous dinosaurs, but it's so much more than that. This is a working museum. So what does that mean? Well, it means, as you can see over here, what we've actually got are some experiments, real-life experiments. This is a stalactite machine. It shows you that stalactite and rock formation has got nothing to do with time, but everything to do with the process. Because they don't need to take millions of years in the slightest, you can grow them very quickly in your backyard, just like what we're doing here. It's all about getting the right process. So we do fabulous experiments like this to put it all into context, but it's not just the boring experiments. We do have the fun dinosaurs, or you can come and have your selfie with a giant T-Rex head. You can come and see some of our fabulous animals. We've got axolotls and turtles and fish, and we've even got, and it's a little bit spooky, but we do have our full real human skeleton as well, called Ezekiel. But you know what? When you get Ezekiel and you start having a little bit of a closer look at him, you realize just how brilliantly human beings are designed, even as far down as our bones. And so we can talk about how, when in the Bible in Jeremiah it says that God knits us together in the womb, you can really see the evidence of this when you look at the human skeleton and how brilliantly designed it is. And uh, as we carry on around the museum, it's Again, not just a museum, we do have the shop here as well, where you can come and explore some of the fabulous creation research books and DVDs, but also get your teeth into some wonderful fossils as well. And who wouldn't like to go home with a Spinosaurus dinosaur tooth? Um, fabulous fossils from all around the world. And then we get into the more museum-y side of stuff. Things like questions about dinosaurs. I mean, here we have the Velociraptor from the films, right? Great, big, huge, ferocious, sharp teeth creature. And yet the reality is Velociraptors were this size at all. In fact, the real size of Velociraptors is this size down here. 
oh now this is a, a toy one right a model one uh, based on the films but they actually happened to make it the right size for velociraptor now they weren't six foot long five foot tall they were actually the size of a big chicken it puts things into perspective but it does make you ask the question why have we been tricked why have we been duped why have we been lied to are there any other things that maybe are presented as truth are presented as fact but aren't really quite the whole picture well if you come with me behind here you can see some of our beautiful mounted fossils up on the wall this is the start of our main museum area you can see these great big crinoid fossils you can see these great big orthoceros or nautiloid squid like fossils and you have to realize that these are claimed to be millions of years old in fact, these are from the Silurian and the Devonian rocks, and they're named after places, by the way. But um, this is supposed to be um, around about 300 million years old. Now, you have to realize that these are living fossils. They haven't changed one bit. So no matter how old you want to make them, whether you believe they're only a few thousand years old, or whether you believe they're millions of years old, all you can prove is that for as long as these creatures have been around, they've been reproducing after their own kind, just like the Bible says. So you're starting to get some of this fabulous evidence in the well, place of real fossils, like these giant mosasaur fossils, you know, the big swimming dinosaur type creatures. These are all real, by the way, just how they're dug up out of the rocks. Now, this gives you a good idea of what we have down here. But upstairs, we have our main museum area. So come with me as we go and explore. Hey, now isn't this just a, a fabulous great big room full of all sorts of treasures? Now on this side of the room, you've got most of the archaeology. On this side of the room, you've got most of the fossils and the geology. Starting over here with dinosaurs. Yeah, you saw the great big models and, the, well, maybe slightly uh, less than truthful models downstairs. But these are the real fossils. Some of them are casts, but most of these are real, including things like dinosaur eggs now when was the last time you got to come up and touch and feel a dinosaur egg well you can do that here in the creation research center in oswald street everything from dinosaur eggs to dinosaur backbones the dinosaur footprints fabulous things that are on display here living fossils hey we saw some living fossils downstairs well we've got everything here from nautiluses to coelacanth to horseshoe fossils fabulous evidence from all around the world and as we carry on down, we get more and more of these fossils, just incredible from after the flood, to fabulous flood fossils, to history and archeology span from all around the world. And the big thing that we're trying to do here at Creation Research, here at the Creation Research Center, is to make things hands-on. So you do get opportunities to come and touch and feel and get up close and personal to the real evidence, to ask real questions about these fossils to really think about the world around us that God has created. But I want to show you one last thing. It's rather interesting, and it's perhaps our star archaeological exhibit. It's this great big brick. Now, what's so exciting about a brick? Well, a few things. Number one, where it comes from. It's from ancient Babylon. Number two, what it's got in it. It's actually been stamped with some special writing cuneiform the ancient babylonian writing and it's also number three been stamped by king nebuchadnezzar himself the biblical king and we know that because it talks about him in the first person it says i am nebuchadnezzar so we know it was nebuchadnezzar who actually wrote it 
Ah, you can come and see not only fabulous examples of artifacts like this, but Egyptian stuff, stuff from the time of King Hezekiah. We've got stone tools and pots and all sorts of wonderful stuff to really give you that big biblical perspective on archaeology. So why don't you come down and join us at the Creation Research Centre in Elswell Street, where you can get up close to personal to some of these wonderful things from all around the world. And more importantly, you can find out just what they mean about yours and mine day-to-day -day life. There we go. A little bit of a, a sneak peek. And if you want to have a, a closer, more detailed look at some of the uh, actual artifacts, then Around the Museum with Joe and Diane is a great place to start. It's like 10 episodes long or something like that, 11, 12, something like that. Anyway, hopefully, Lord willing, we'll get a, a whole load more episodes filmed when Diane comes over because we uh, are actually going to be in and around the at the same time, which is great. And uh, there's so many more things that we can do and set up and uh, talk about, including uh, what I really would like to get Diane to do, because I think our best episode out of all of them was when we went through some of the uh, human bones and talked about some of the design of the, the limbs structures and so on and so forth and we actually have a an entire complete human skeleton genuine one now in the museum his name's ezekiel um and so it'll be great to get uh, diane to go over some of that and have a couple of episodes talking about human um design as well as human evolution and so on and so forth so um yeah it's uh, really exciting mm. to see all the museums being developed. And, of course, uh, Glenn is developing uh, a, a travelling museum over in the USA as well, which uh, is coming along nicely yeah. with all of uh, uh, both his fossil collection as well as John and mine that we've mm. collected over in the States over the years. So it's uh, it's great to be able to see all these things coming together. We have six museum programmes around the world now, including one in Canada as well. Um, so it's, it's really quite exciting. Um, do continue to follow Creation Research and support us because it's only by your support that we can actually develop these museums and get everything going in them so uh, and keep them up and running. So continue to uh, to support Creation Research, follow what we're doing, continue to uh, come and visit us and follow us on YouTube and uh, like, subscribe, share and uh, really get the message out there. But um, it's about time that we, uh, we close down now. So I don't think we had too many more um uh questions and stuff but we'll um we do we, we will, do save uh, the questions sure. if we don't we if, do we, indeed, if we don't yeah, get yeah. to a question during the live stream mm -hmm. we do save all of them and we do have special yeah. q and a um episodes where we just do questions from, the, from we should have a q and a Q &A episode coming up in the next couple yes. of uh, weeks yeah. anyway so do join us for them but anyway uh join us uh next week as we uh delve into the topic of giants we're looking forward to that one pray that uh, john will uh be strong and well enough to be able to join us again and we will see you in a just week's before, time Good just quickly just before we go on. i just want to do a really quick plug if you if you like sort of seeing um stuff about the museums uh we have all of the episodes available on creation research tv uh, which is our uh 24 7 live streaming uh tv channel which you don't need a tv license for because it's all our own content um so if you live in the uk 
don't worry about that. Uh, but it's all free. Uh, we've got tons of content on there. So always keep on tuning in. You never know what you're going to find. Uh, it's a really, really great resource. Um, and also as well, uh, we're always looking for people to uh, get involved in creation research as well. I mean, and, uh, you know, wherever you are in, or around the world, we're always looking for people to help out. So whether you're in the States, Canada, uh, Australia, Tasmania, New Zealand, Timbuktu, UK, whatever, um, you know, get in touch, get in touch with us. And uh, we'll, 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 I'm sure we can probably find a place for you. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, do continue to support all of the work that we do all over the world. And we will see you next week. It's time to go, folks. So goodbye. God bless. And we will catch you for another episode in a week's time. Yeah. See you all later. Bye.